Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 460. And I I don't, I, you know, I'm not going to say that I don't know anything about this stress cycle we might be talking about today. <laughs> um, no, no, ex- neither one of us have any experience with anything like this. What are you talking about? None, not at all. And you know what? I'm sure none of our listeners do either. <laughs> um, uh. Yeah. So we do have a question from a listener today. And um, I, I, as always, I feel like we need to remind people that, you know, we choose we choose questions that hit home for us. Um, and one of the things that I want to mention before we jump in is we're going to be talking about medication as it relates to this particular issue. Um, but medication in general is just off the top. First of all, we're not doctors. We can't diagnose or give recommendations. Um, But there is a reason that modern medicine exists. And here on this show, we talk about optimizing health and wellness. And that includes both the things you can control and the things you cannot. And that is the beauty of living in a modern day society where we know the science of things we can control. And also, there's a reason that modern medicine exists. So I just want to kind of remind people of that before we jump in. And we're going to talk more in detail about, you know, our thoughts on medication in general. Um, but I I just, I, I feel like I need to put that out there because of the environment that we've been in for over a year and the approach that, you know, some people are taking or thinking or being told and all that kind of stuff. It's just, it's a fact of life about what a wonderful thing it is that we have access to modern medicine because it can be life-saving, it can be life-changing, all that good stuff. I've been saved, uh, my life's been saved by modern medicine um, a number of times. So, um, you know, I think um, I think the overall philosophy that we have in our lives, but also on this show, is that um, natural health through informed um, diet and lifestyle choices is not mutually exclusive with conventional medicine. Like we've we've talked on the show a lot about the functional medicine approach, looking for root causes, um, and obviously when we're trying to to manage chronic illnesses, that is a, a really important strategy for achieving wellness, but it's not the only tool, right? And we can, um, we can use sort of like the best of both worlds. So all of the work that we put into diet and lifestyle doesn't mean that there will never be a time and a place for a medication, a surgery, a, another type of conventional treatment. And just because we are needing a, a conventional medicine treatment for something doesn't let us off the hook for diet and lifestyle, right? They're both important. And when we're looking at uh, health and wellness uh, sort of globally, it really it really requires this kind of comprehensive, complementary approach where we get to use the best tools for every aspect of our health. Agreed. So that said... Let's hear a question from Sarah, but Sarah not Sarah without an H. Yes. Different Sarah. Yes. <laughs> we spell our we spell our names differently. Both correctly. I'm I just I think Sarah's with an H and Sarah's without an H have this like long standing little like, oh well, do you spell your name correctly? Um, kind of like teasing teasing thing going on. And I'm just going to I'm Sarah and I in the club of Sarah's, I'm gonna say all spellings of Sarah are the correct spelling of Sarah. Well, Stacy's uh, with an E. They're still incorrect. Just, just going <laughs> to put that out there. Okay, fair. Uh, so Sarah wrote, first off, my mother and I love your show and have been listening to the show for years. I love how you can tackle complicated topics and boil them down to easy to understand and enjoyable shows. 
Stacy, your journey with your son through ADHD has, was such a help for me when my oldest son was diagnosed. It gave me a place to go when I wasn't sure where to go next. Now to the reason I'm writing to you. I've been battling rosacea flares ever since 2010 when I had my first son. Pregnancy seemed to get everything off and I now deal with flares off and on. I know stress is a trigger. My dermatologist's answer is always to put me on antibiotics for months at a time and it's killing my gut health. I'd finally gotten my gut health to a pretty good place and hadn't needed to be treated for quite some time and then COVID hit. My mother-in-law moved in and I started remote schooling three extra kids in my home along with my own children. No stress here. My question is, how do I maintain my gut health when I have rosacea and have to use antibiotics to control the flare? Thank you for all the hard work you ladies put into your shows. First of all, I just want to give Sarah like the biggest high five virtual hug gold star kudos possible because I cannot imagine adding a, that many additional children to my virtual school situation. Um, I have four children, one of whom joined during this year as well, and that that was a lot. So I totally understand the stress that Sarah is under. Um, and I also want to say that my mother has rosacea that also flares the way that Sarah is talking about. And um, she has been prescribed a number of things, not just um, antibiotics, but also like steroid lotion um, mm -hmm. and different sort of things. So um as much as we can try to do things like we said at the top of the show from a lifestyle perspective, and we'll get into that. Um, there is also this idea, as we mentioned that this using a medication is not a failure. And I will add that sometimes the flare itself can be an additional stress that can be like the snowball of a problem, right? Like, yeah. like when it starts flaring, then we start being like, oh my gosh. And now I know that this means that I'm stressed. And what is this, you know, like, and, and you kind of get yourself into this mindset that's very difficult to get out of. And so I just want to just remind us all to breathe. We're going to, we're going to go through all this kind of stuff, including like mindfulness, as I like to call it, Sarah will call it meditation. <laughs> <laughs> but these sort of things, um, they're not going to solve our problems, but they are important for the overall answer. So um, I just, I have a lot of empathy for Sarah and um, I'm, I'm glad that we're going to answer her question and help her today because I'm sure a lot of our listeners will relate to this idea, not just of maybe her particular issue, but that when we get in these stress cycles, it's very difficult to get out of them because they snowball on top of each other. Once we're stressed, then we know that we're stressed and then that stresses us out even more. And, you know, it's, we just need to remind ourselves to like, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm just need to take a deep breath and do the things that I know can help me, which we're going to walk through. I really appreciate your point, Stacey, of um, sometimes medication is actually the thing that can break that stress snowball. I think um, we, you know, we, we very much in sort of health conscious communities broadly want to live our lives medication free, right? We want to never have to talk to our doctors. Um, a lot of us come to health conscious communities more broadly um, through really frustrating experiences with conventional medicine. We, we come very jaded and, and cynical about what conventional medicine can even do for us. And we really want to feel empowered by the choices that we're making on a day to day. And so um, I think there's uh, a sort of instinct in our community to try to like muscle through, right? And try to like tough it out and avoid going to the doctor or um, using a conventional treatment sort of at all costs. And I think it's really important to emphasize that there is a time and a place for antibiotics. Sometimes they're absolutely necessary. Uh, they can be life-saving. Um, but even more broadly, there are times where a pharmaceutical 
can be the thing that kind of puts the break in, um, you know, the stress inflammation cycle, right? The gut health cycle, right? And we can give our bodies a, just, just a moment to, to readjust. And all of a sudden, um, we can end up getting more results from the diet and lifestyle choices we're taking because we took this um, approach where we used a pharmaceutical to, to uh, basically put, you know, basically stop this sort of like runaway positive feedback loop that's a negative experience. It's like putting a plug in the boat that is filling up with water, right? It's it, yeah. it's not a tight seal. It's not going to permanently solve the problem, but it gives you enough time to, to maybe start bailing water. <laughs> bail water and get to shore, you know. <laughs> uh that I I am I am really on board with that analogy. <laughs> Oh, I just literally <laughs> face palmed. <laughs> Matt will love that one. That was not planned, guys. All right. So, um, so I, I, I think both of us really want to um, emphasize that medication is not failure. Um, that there is a time and a place. Um, I think also, so rosacea also runs in my family, Stacy, and, um, and I know that there have there are more options than just these sort of long tetracycline courses for treatment. Um, so, you know, maybe there's a conversation to have with your doctor about maybe trying some of the topical medications. Um, you know, obviously your doctor knows your history. They're going to have an opinion about what works for you. And maybe the the best option is still antibiotics, but I think it's always worthwhile to engage in that conversation. Stacy, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on skincare for rosacea. Um, you know, I was trying to think of if there was something, um, maybe not necessarily that would be get you through a flare, but maybe could be useful in between for management. Like I was thinking like zinc oxide because it's got it's got such anti-inflammatory properties, but you are a resident skincare <laughs> expert. So I putting you on the spot, I totally didn't let you know that I was going to ask you this. No, it's, I would refer people back to our dry winter skin issue because we talk about repairing the um, moisture barrier with lipids on that show, which is incredibly helpful for rosacea. Um, zinc oxide SPF in particular is also fantastic, not just from the anti-inflammatory perspective, but also because sun can irritate rosacea. And so mm. by protecting yourself um, with SPF, so something, um, for example, there are two that Beauty Counter has that are both entirely zinc oxide and, um, titanium dioxide, if I'm getting that correctly, but both yeah. of the minerals for SPF. Um, and if you find something like that, you just want to make sure that there's no chemical filter. Um, if it's clear or, um, if it has any of the six chemical filter SPFs on the label, um, they're mixing. And as we've talked about many times on the show before, uh, companies can put whatever they want on the front of the label because there's no regulation on that right now. So just be really careful when you're choosing an SPF. Um, there's also been this new study. Um, and again, like I'm just, it's interesting that this is coming up today. It's not in the show notes, but I'll uh, make sure that we add a link on the uh, on it for you. Um, there was a recent um, third party evaluation of modern SPFs that came out this uh, last week um, that had benzene contaminating a significant amount of <gasps> most of the name brands, and that's a known carcinogen. Um, and it's it's a contaminant. It's not like the brands are knowingly or intentionally. <laughs> And some of the mineral SPFs are actually on that list. It's not only the chemical mm -hmm. ones. So, you know, we just need to be really careful. In particular, SPF is, is becoming more and more known to be um, absorbed into the bloodstream if it's a chemical one and, and all these kinds of things. So when I say zinc oxide SPF, I, I just... 
I'm giving all of these caveats because when you're dealing with something like a compromised skin barrier, um, you're going to be absorbing it even more. So it's just super important to make sure that you're choosing one um, that's like tested for safety and the ingredients are going to be clean and nourishing to your skin and not cause further irritation. The other thing that I want to mention that's um, really big for skin is uh, rosacea in particular is to not use hot water. So we also talked about that, um, calling back to that mm-hmm. um, dry winter skin issues I'm show. still sticking my hands over my ears <laughs> and going, nah, 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 I can't hear you. Well, you don't have an active flare of rosacea, so that's, I'll allow it. That's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll allow it. But that is super critical um, in particular for rosacea as well. And then... The last thing that I know that we'll get into is that I notice that people who have issues with dairy in particular are affected by rosacea. So Mm. um, I can think of two people that I know who went on a keto diet and leaned heavily into um, dairy and reduced probably their vegetable and fiber and all of that kind of stuff. And And had rosacea flares. And had rosacea flares as a result. So... um, that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I'm. I mean, I I can I can like picture the the like tree of molecular processes that would go from point A to point B there. So um, biologically, that makes sense to me. Uh, and we're definitely going to talk about the the main part of Sarah's question about gut health. But I wanted to make sure that we also kind of gave Sarah as many different ideas for how to um, manage rosacea. Again, maybe this isn't enough during that flare, but maybe it helps in between. So I had a quick look at the science in terms of red light therapy for uh, rosacea. There's more studies done on other skin conditions. Like the, I think the most is probably just wound healing um, studies in psoriasis. Um, but there are a couple of studies showing that red light therapy actually in conjunction conjunction with doxycycline can be better than dox by itself. So um, something like uh, a juve, which is our favorite red and near-infrared light therapy at home device, um, they're not sponsoring the show, but we both love them and use them ourselves in our daily lives. Um, so that's another thing to look into. Um, and we would definitely appreciate using our link. Uh that's juve.com forward slash paleoview, old link. Uh, that's J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash paleoview. And, uh, and thanks. Thanks for checking them out. I think they're great. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, let's move on to the other part of Sarah's question before we wrap up of sort of like the gut health supporting piece, which is, um, this, uh, stress is a trigger because I also have, um, a stress is a trigger for me. I'm very sensitive to my stress levels. And I also, um, even though I, am really proactive in managing stress. I'm not, uh, I'm not ubiquitously successful, even with being proactive, if that makes any sense. Um, I I definitely have this like ebb and flow relationship. It's a personality thing. Let's be honest. Like we have to actively work on changing who we are emotionally and mentally in order to manage stress. And that's just, that's the nature of, of some people, you and me included. These, 
type A's, let's call them. But you know what I learned about this? I think we talked about this on the um, emotion show is that this often comes hand in hand with people who strive to be perfectionists. So in learning to let go of those things, it's helped me manage from that stress cycle as well. Have you found that that's helpful for you? Have I ever tried letting go of being a perfectionist? (laughs) I'm saying when you try, because I know sometimes you must. Does it help manage the stress or does it stress you out even more to like try to let go of that a little bit? That's a really good question. I think the honest answer is the latter. I think, you know, there's certain things that in my life don't rank as importantly. And when, when something doesn't rank that importantly, I'm a lot more accepting of mediocrity, but, um, you know, things that I feel very passionately about, I'm not just a person who searches for perfection. I'm also a person who searches for, um, comprehension. So if you've noticed, my articles tend to be very long, super well-researched, and tend to tackle an issue from every possible perspective. Um, and that's a that's a really good, like, tangible example of how I tend to approach everything in my life, right? It's not just that I want to be super informed and evidence-based. It's that I want to I want to know the whole thing. Um, I want to do the whole piece of it, like whatever it is. And so um, I think for me, what helps isn't necessarily letting go of perfection, but um, setting a reasonable timeline to achieve the level of quality that I want to achieve for whatever it is. And then... um, when it's something that doesn't make that priority list of something that I I do want to apply my perfectionist tendencies to, um, those things, right? Like, you know, how uh, delicious our dinner is. I mean, as long as it's edible, it's going to be fine, right? It doesn't need to be a gourmet meal. So those, those types of things that hit lower down on my priority list, um, those are the things I'm far more likely to be able to let go of and like have it be like, okay, no, I, I feel fine. I feel fine that, you know, tonight our starch is bananas because I had no, I had no like room in my life to actually cook sweet potatoes and look, we've got bananas and that's what we're just going to have. And it's going to be fine. And everyone in the house likes bananas. Like when I can, those are the types of things that I can sort of let go of and it eases my stress level. But if I were to let go of, um, you know, I want this uh, chapter in a book, and uh, in order to meet my deadline, I'm I'm not I'm going to have to cut this chapter. That's the kind of thing that just stresses me out even more because it feels feels like I'm not achieving the the thing that I'm so, that I think is so important. Yeah, I feel a lot of that, and um, I relate not at all to being long winded um, and questioning. So. <laughs> thing. Um, so I want to point Sarah to some of our recent shows where we've talked about stress, um, and talked about it from different angles. I mean, we just talked about stress in the, uh, context of the collective trauma that we've gone through with COVID and reentry anxiety two episodes ago, um, in episode 458. Um, Stacy staged an intervention for me in episode 447, where we talked about how basic needs don't count as self-care. Um, episode 446 and 409, we specifically talked about how nutrient deficiencies can magnify the stress response. In 397, we really talked about um, the very close link between sleep and stress and how to prioritize both so that um, both are being optimized. Because if we don't sleep well, that magnifies the stress response. And if we're stressed, that erodes sleep quality. Um, And so it's really, really tough to work on one or the other and not address both together. And then 
Um, going back to episode 351, where we really talked about the physiological impacts of stress, there's also a lot of, of tips in, in terms of stress management in that episode. So kind of wanted to, to, to point back to, to uh, that, that catalog of, of useful shows, really just specifically talking about uh, stress management, um, what we could refer to as like work-life balance, although really it's just life-life balance, and um, and ways that we can make sure that looking after ourselves is on the to-do list. Like that, to me, I think is is the biggest piece of it. Is that the things that I need for myself can't be so low on the to-do list that they never get done. They have to be high up enough that they're they're part of the check marks from from the day. I get it. And I feel that. I think one of the things that we um, need to, you know, remember is that it's not just little things like mini petties and definitely go back to that 447 show, but um, learning to be more active about the things that we um, are doing with intention. So I just want to admit that mindfulness and breathing and giving yourself time for walks and baths and whatever it is that you need um, are really ways to support your health. And if you think about it that way, then that allows you to be there for the people that need you, which sometimes those of us with these kinds of problems need to hear or tell ourselves in order to justify some time alone is that it's really for others. Um, so it's just a, a talk track that you need to find for yourself to um, feel good about. But I do think that, like you said, we've given so much time to that and also on the skin side, right? So I will add um, that episode 431, um, also talking about active ways, you know, from a skincare perspective to support that self-care that will help Sarah as well. I think the thing that um, is interesting and I'm curious on the science of is how we can support from a health perspective when we do lean on medical intervention and prescriptions to to kind of stop the flow of the water into the boat, right? What mm -hmm. What is the bailing of the water in that scenario? What does that look like and how can we support ourselves during that time period? So um, I think this is a fascinating question and I'm actually really surprised we haven't covered this on the podcast before. Um, so the reason why just to kind of like back up to the, the basic science that, um, Sarah sort of has alluded to in her question and Stacey, you did just now, um, just to make sure that that basic understanding is, is, um, established first is antibiotics, um, the types of antibiotics that we use to treat an infection, um, or for other types of, of conditions like rosacea, um, are what are typically called broad spectrum. So the, the word antibiotic is derived from the Greek and literally means against life, like anti-living. And, um, and what it actually does, the, the chemicals that we um, use as medications that are antibiotics um, tend to kill indiscriminately bacteria, fungi, even some parasites. And what that means is because they're typically taken by the oral route. Um, you know, it's a, there are, um, IV antibiotics, for example, um, which is sort of a different, a whole different class of medications. That's usually something that would only happen if you had a really serious infection in hospital. Um, the vast majority of us, if we have to take antibiotics, we're, we're taking it orally. And that means that before that antibiotic is absorbed into our body, it is dissolved into our intestines where our gut bacteria live. And um, they it, it's basically causing the um, en masse destruction of the beneficial gut bacteria and gut yeast that live in the small and large intestine. And that's one of the reasons why antibiotics tend to have GI side effects. It's because of um, its very destructive impact on the gut microbiome. So the question is, um, you know, whether it's a short course of antibiotics or a long course of antibiotics, how do we 
preserve our gut microbiome as best we can during uh, a course of antibiotics? And then how do we restore the diversity and the growth of probiotic species as efficiently as possible on the other side. And we've talked about gut health uh, a lot on the show recently that comes out of me nerding out about the gut microbiome a lot because of all the research I've done for my um, most recent uh, eBooks and upcoming imprint book. Um, and so, um, and so what's really fascinating about antibiotics is this now gets beyond food, right? It now gets beyond lifestyle, vitamin D status, all of the things that we know are really important for establishing that healthy gut microbiome in the first place, because the hammer is so strong hitting the gut microbiome when we're taking antibiotics. Um, And so what's really fascinating is the science has shown that the best thing that we can do to preserve the gut microbiome during a course of antibiotics, as well as restore it afterwards, is actually take probiotics um, and take fairly high-dose probiotics. Um, And there are certain species in particular that have been shown to be really important. Um, And I think what's fascinating about this is there's, I've seen this myth on the internet of, you know, that we shouldn't take probiotics while we're taking antibiotics because somehow those probiotics will interfere with the antibiotics effectiveness or it's just useless to take them because the antibiotics will kill them off before they can do anything. And the science actually shows that's that's not at all the case. So from every different sort of way that we look at this, probiotics can reduce the gastrointestinal side effects of antibiotics, um, especially side effects like diarrhea. There have been studies showing that they can preserve the microbiome structure enough to dramatically reduce the risk of antibiotic-associated infections like C. difficile. And uh, studies have shown that especially lactobacillus species, um, lactobacillus um, rhamnos has been particularly uh, identified as being very, very helpful in preserving the structure of the gut microbiome. So has the beneficial yeast Saccharomyces boyardi. So um, certain species sort of, um, and bifidobacterium, I guess is the other ones, right? Bifidobacterium lactobacillus, and Saccharomyces um, boyardii have been um, have have been studied and shown to be the most beneficial in the context of taking antibiotics. Um, and they've basically shown that um, they can help basically to maintain gut barrier health. Right? They're basically even if they don't take up residence when you're taking them during a course of antibiotics they can do good things on their way through. And, um, and studies have even compared uh, starting probiotics during a course of antibiotics versus after and shown that taking probiotics during helps stabilize the gut microbiome compared to, to starting after the antibiotics. Um, in these studies, they've shown that the percentage of people with gut dysbiosis is much higher in the group that starts probiotics after they're finished antibiotic therapy compared to during the entire time. And we can we can take a um, fermented food perspective um, on this, um, but the studies have basically shown that really, like for adults, we want to be consuming at least 10 billion uh, what are called colony forming units per day. It's basically just a measure of how many live bacteria are in there. Um, And actually something closer to 40 billion is probably optimal in the context of taking antibiotics. Um, And for children, that would be about 5 billion. That's a really concentrated amount of bacteria and kind of tough to get from uh, fermented foods. Um, so look for fermented foods that actually have a concentration of bacteria on the label. Some of them do, um, or super lean in or combine fermented foods. The great thing about fermented foods is they tend to have way higher diversity, but in this case, it really is lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, and saccharomyces boulardii that have been shown 
to be the most important. And then studies have shown that on the other side, um, it can still be beneficial. So even uh, studies basically show that taking, continuing to take the probiotics for three weeks after you finish the antibiotic treatment is, um, is what is the most beneficial for the gut microbiome on the other side. Um, and on the other side, then you want to do all of the other things that are really beneficial for gut health that we've talked about uh, approximately a million times on the show. Um, you know, this is all, uh, all of the science behind sort of optimal diet and lifestyle and nutrient density for the gut microbiome is described in my ebook, the gut health guidebook. Um, but I'll give you all the cliff notes. It's uh, a diet that's high in veggies, fruit, mushrooms, and seafood, um, rounded out with nuts and seeds and grass fed meats and fermented foods and phytonutrient rich foods like herbs and spices and tea and coffee, dark chocolate, extra virgin olive oil. The best fats for the gut microbiome, uh, besides the long chain omega-3s in seafood, is a high quality extra virgin olive oil. Um, Hydration is really important for the gut microbiome. We talked about that in episode 406. And our gut bacteria are also sensitive to the nutrient density of our diet. So we want to make sure that we are choosing a lot of nutrient-dense foods, that we're not missing out on any essential nutrients, especially the fat-soluble vitamins and minerals. They're very sensitive to our hormone environment, so that means testing for vitamin D and supplementing if we're deficient or insufficient. And that also means dialing in lifestyle factors. Again, right, sleep and stress are impacting our hormone environment, which is then actually impacting our gut health. So um, studies actually show that not getting enough sleep or being inactive or overtraining or uh, being stressed all skew the gut microbiome unfavorably. Um, the diet is about 60% though. So I, I know we're kind of talking about this challenge in the context of how hard it can be to break out of the stress flare cycle. So acknowledging that that's where food choices and a good probiotic, um, come in handy. And then of course there's foods that, um, don't work for everybody that are, for example, not part of the autoimmune protocol, but that are good for the gut microbiome if they're tolerated. And we've talked about some of these in depth on the show before, like corn, um, rice, especially brown rice would be on this list. Gluten-free oats would be on this list. Pseudograins like quinoa and chia would be on this list. Um, most legumes, uh, and basically all legumes other than soy and peanuts would be on this list. And so would A2 dairy. So that would be like goat, sheep, or, or camel, donkey dairy, if you can get, I don't, I've never seen donkey dairy anywhere, but if you can get donkey dairy, that's, that's A2. I'm I'm just going to leave it there. I'm waiting. I'm (laughs) waiting for a Sarah. (laughs) Well, I mean, we've talked about camel before. I I guess I'm not surprised about donkey, but I, I think the easier solution to A2, like I've seen it on my grocery delivery is they have A2 dairy, um, that you can just like search on. There are some cows that produce predominantly A2 dairy. Yes. Um, And I think it needs to be, there's a certain regulation. I can't remember what the number is. There's a certain amount of the ratio from A2 to A1 um, that is required. So most A2 dairy is not a hundred percent A2 dairy. Um, So if you're very sensitive to A1 beta casein, a lot of A2 dairy products will still not work for you. Um, and so just, just be aware that the proportion of A2 to A1 is actually different between all of these different, um, animal milks. And so, uh, that's not something that I, I didn't pull those numbers. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not even sure that I have anywhere like a full breakdown of what the percentage is for different animals, but I do know that it's different. Um, and there's certain, like camel milk is predominantly A2. I think goat and sheep is like majority A2, right? So that's a, those are different words. <laughs> and so that's why you can be sensitive to some milks and not others. A lot of that boils down to the fraction that's A2 versus A1, given that A1 is far more uh, allergenic and also it's um, metabolized differently. So um, it's literally like an amino acid difference, but that changes 
one of the metabolites of digestion um, to produce this really inflammatory uh, molecule that is um, interacts with opioid receptors in our bodies, um, which basically just makes it um, like cheese opium. That's what I think of it as. <laughs> I think of A1 dairy as like cheese opium. Listen, if, it's delicious, okay? And those of us that can't have popcorn, we're going we're gonna to enjoy if we can. Um, but I do kind of want to just back up a little bit because you were mm-hmm. talking so quickly um, as I am not surprised at all that we would be trying to like um, give all the information as we said at the top of the show we love to do Mm -hmm. um, that I just want to remind kind of where we are with these foods in particular that you're talking about are foods that um, can be helpful to our microbiome but that um, for some people we might see more of an inflammatory response in and so if you are just coming to this idea of having a flare and, you know, what to do and supporting your gut microbiome as you are on or coming off of antibiotics. Like these would be the foods that I personally would reintroduce carefully when I am not in a flare, right? Yes. So these are not like these, these foods that your microbiome might like aren't the foods that we're like, and all of these, because what could happen is if you are going to have an inflammatory response to um, corn or dairy or whatever it is, right, then you're just going to kind of undo the work that you just did with the mm-hmm. antibiotics by re-inflaming yourself and starting that cycle over again. So um, when I think about and when I give advice to people about skincare, like the most important thing is just to get as simple as possible with what you know your body will like. And that's from, you know, the temperature of your shower to the kind of exercise that is moderate for you to extra sleep to the foods that you know that your body loves. So if you have a recipe for a particular soup, for example, that you can load up with vegetables that, you know, you cook with the herbs and the fats and all the things and you kind of simplify it for yourself because otherwise it can feel overwhelming and you're like, okay, I'm just going to make this soup. Right. Um, And then when you're, feeling better because you focused on that stuff and and you've done the skincare and and you know your brain is swirling with all these things that you're trying to process um then you can toy with these other things after yeah. you're kind of out of the flare and your stress has calmed down and all that kind of stuff but i just i wanted to kind of back up a little bit because we we jumped into microbiome and and gut health which is what we're talking about when we talk about antibiotics but Back to Sarah's question, I would not recommend that Sarah focus on these sort of things that you just mentioned until after her flare is resolved and she's like, okay, how does my body do with these things? Because these are the kinds of foods that might trigger a flare. For sure. So um, thank you for backing up to this. I think um, it's, I want to elaborate on that even further because the idea behind, for example, the elimination phase of the autoimmune protocol and then reintroductions is to identify trigger foods. And if any of these foods become trigger foods, you know, you might be able to tolerate a little bit here and there in between a flare, but they're definitely going to be problematic during a flare. Um, But there's also this whole category of foods that I sort of think of as sometimes foods, (laughs) Um, foods that if I have them once in a while, it's going to be fine. You know, I, I will bounce back from whatever little bit of inflammation that they cause. But if things are on that unravel side of the sort of stress cycle, uh, especially if I'm consuming them a little bit more frequently, that, that slow burn is going to start adding up to noticeable impacts. And so, Um, I have a variety of foods that I know that if I, you know, eat them no more than once a week, I don't, I I feel fine. They're, they're fine for me. But if I, if I were to eat them every day, I would definitely start falling down that snowball of badness effect. So, um, so those sometimes foods 
are a little bit harder to identify in the reintroduction process. Um, and for a lot of people with um, systemic inflammation, right, not just autoimmune disease, um, foods like grains and dairy and soy products are and nightshades are sort of like the most common foods that um, are uh, contextually tolerated. So they're tolerated when we're getting enough sleep and our stresses well managed and our activity levels are dialed in and we're getting lots of, you know, meaningful, positive connection and our diet is nutrient dense. And then as soon as one of those like foundational pillars of health is, is not solid, all of a sudden how our bodies react to that food sort of tips from tolerate into, no, now this food is problematic and it's undermining our health. And it's very frustrating. It is a long road to identifying those foods because it kind of takes this, it sort of takes this like, oops, I guess I just learned something, right? It kind of takes us like learning the hard way a little bit to really identify those foods. Um, and so one of the things though is um, I kind of wanted to emphasize that when you do have a successful reintroduction, a food that um, when you do reintroduce it, it's not a slow burn. It's not a sometimes food. You're like, wow, I actually feel better when I eat this food. And that might be a two dairy. It might be lentils, right? It might be something that's not traditional, you know, it's not part of the autoimmune protocol, not, you know, part of the paleo diet, for example. Um, if you have had the experience of eliminating and reintroducing that food and really discovering that, no, that food like legit works for you, um, then that's a good food to, like that's no longer a target for elimination during a flare. Um, if you've really like conclusively proven to yourself that this food works for you, um, that just, that gets to stay on the, uh, the, the list of foods that when I'm sort of tightening up to get through a flare, that food stays on that list, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Gluten-free oats do that for me. And it's interesting that that's like in the same bucket as corn, for example, because corn is, does not make me feel good. But it's interesting that we are also bio-individual in that mm -hmm. way. And oats might make someone else not feel great. But for me, um, like I literally feel it in my body and I sometimes crave it. And I think it's, you know, for me, it's probably a fiber thing. Like, I don't know what it is, but I, I have found a brand of glyphosate free, gluten free oats that I feel good when I eat. And like you said, I don't think about that as like a sometimes food. Like for me, I feel great with it. And so I include it as part of regular consumption without mm -hmm. worrying about it or what you know what I mean it's just not one of those things for me so I have found the same thing with lentils I have really just found that every time I eat lentils I feel better like it's not just again it's not just a tolerate it's not just okay but there's something I mean they're super they're they're actually very nutrient dense and they're um very fiber dense um and they're very good for the gut microbiome and I, I that's the only thing that I can think of to attribute it to, because I, um, uh, legumes in general, the types of fiber are not quite the same as what you would get, say, in root vegetables, which would have the most similar um, types of fiber. And so I'm thinking like, oh, this is just, this is feeding some kind of species that um, is is kind of, you know, not thriving when I'm not eating these, these lentils, but when I do, it's super happy. And it's obviously a species that's beneficial to me. Um, and so it's lentils have become a food that, um, I like, tr I'm trying to find, I try to find ways to like sneak it into things because I know that I feel better if I, if I consume them more regularly. So it's, it's, um, I think one of the things that it's really important to share um, especially because we started our journeys following a very strict paleo diet is that there are, yes, there's bioindividuality, um, but there's also a, quite a large collection of foods for which the modern science shows they're going to work for a lot of people. And um, I think it's really important as part of our health journeys to 
experiment with ourselves and really figure out if those foods are working for us. Because I think there's this tendency, we've talked about this on the show approximately a million times, that when cutting foods out makes you feel better, the the tendency when we go to troubleshoot is to cut out more foods. And that's typically what can get us into problems because eventually you cut out enough foods that you start creating additional nutrient deficiencies. And I really, um, I really recommend and encourage everyone to experiment with foods that you haven't eaten in a while. You don't need to go to gluten. I mean, like it doesn't need, if you've had a really bad reaction to a food, not that one. Um, but there's the possibility of eliminating a food because of a dietary structure that that food was a really health promoting food for you. And I think it's one of the reasons why Stacy and I have both, you know, taken, um, taken these sort of tangential steps. Um, it's, you know, kind of, I don't want to necessarily say away from paleo. It's more like an expanded definition of paleo. Um, but towards really like taking a, a revisit of some of these foods that we haven't eaten for a really long time and, uh, and experimenting and seeing if they work for us. And, and the discovery, uh, the discovery of, I feel, I feel better now eating these foods. Um, that was kind of eye opening for me. That was like, wow, you know, here I was putting this food in this bucket of, uh, oh, no, those, those things are going to, those are terrible. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, um, no, this, this food really works for me. Um, and maybe, maybe I need to revisit some of the other things that I'm, I'm not eating. And then maybe some of them aren't going to work for me. Um, turns out tomatoes, uh, still don't, <laughs> we're still not friends. We still don't get along. Um, and discovering that I, as much as it was a miserable couple of days, I can, I can take that information as empowering information to really know what the lines are that I can and can't cross. I'm just over here, like waving the, um, this is why diet culture dogma is problematic flag. So I don't know mm-hmm. if you see that, but. Yep. Um, it's blue. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I think this is, this is the thing that a lesson that we've learned that maybe you're realizing or learning or that maybe we can learn for you um, or that you yourself are, you know, you've been here for a while and you're happy to see us here, whatever it is. I think the most important thing is to recognize that what we're, what our goal is, is health. And when we focus on health being the goal, things like lentils, have value. And when we get to such a point with our diet culture that you see something like the carnivore diet, say vegetables are problematic, um, I think we we need to all kind of collectively take a step back and put our hands up and be like, whoa, like the science, <laughs> the science is not supporting that. Where have we gone in this journey? I think it's too far. Um, and we do have a show on that. If you want more information in the science on that, it's not just me, you know, throwing something out there. We there we'll put a link in the show notes. But um, I I think you know it's interesting. I was having a conversation with someone recently who um, originally found me personally like on social media through paleo. And then as we, I don't know if you hear this often, Sarah, but I often hear, I'm no longer paleo, but I follow you for X, Y, Z. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, it's like, they came to that conclusion on, on their own and they still find value in delicious recipes we might share or different things we might talk about that aren't specific to, you know, that old version of, of what we focused on. And they said, we were talking um, about some other, dietary beliefs and they were repeating some phrases that you often hear like well you're not going to sleep well um and you'll need all these supplements and um you'll have really low energy but just push through because blah 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 and they were like i hear that back now and i hear it i hear that it's a problem but in the moment the idea of weight loss 
was so appealing that I was willing to pretend that I was achieving health for the name and the sake of doing those things. And I think that was really powerful for me to hear someone else explain like the logical journey that I have also kind of come to see in such a like concrete and clear sort of explanation, right? And I think we've all heard those things between, you know, all the dietary things that are out there right now. Those sort of phrases are are told to people and to justify a diet, a a truly, and I don't mean diet like lifestyle diet, I mean um, like a, uh, I don't know, like I don't know how else to use the word, but like a cultural phenomenon that is obsessed with weight loss and then under the cloak of health. And what we are trying to tell you is that if you feel sluggish and tired, if you aren't sleeping well, if you have to take a bajillion supplements in order to get the nutrients that you aren't getting from the foods that you're eating. Um, or, or to poop. Or, or right. Or to have, you know, proper digestion and bowel movements. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, we want you to reconsider, is that right for you? And what is right for you is not the same as what's right for me or Sarah. I mean, Sarah can do corn and legumes, but cannot do dairy. I don't know how you feel about oats, but you know, it's like, we're completely, we have different things that work. Oats are sometimes food for me. Right. So I, I'm okay with some oats once in a while. And if I get a little too crazy and decide that I'm going to eat them a few days in a row, then I'm like, Oh no, I start to not feel that good. I start to feel sluggish. Different for us, but also the same. Neither one of us can do tomatoes. Right. So whatever that looks like for you, I just want to encourage you to listen to your body. And it's so much more against our cultural norm to just like be given a prescription of these are the foods to not eat. And these are the foods to eat. And then you just follow the list and you're like, okay, and now I have a prescription for feeling great. Um, Unfortunately, there is no one size fits all solution, no matter how many people are trying to sell that to you. And I think that it's just really important and relevant in the context of healing, which is what we're talking about with Sarah's question, that we go through this physical journey of healing and listening to our bodies and um, trying to experiment through these elimination diets. But it's also this emotional healing and letting go of this idea that weight loss is the epitome of health. And I think Sarah's question is a really great example of that. Like, we have no idea what Sarah's weight is and if she's happy with it or not happy with it. And the thing is, it's not relevant to her health in this scenario. And so I just, I'm glad we kind of like got to this point that I could get in the soapbox because I think it wraps up a lot of the different things that we've talked about on the show and how important they all are in coming together to really support your health. So back back on track now that we've been on the soapbox for who knows how long, <laughs> I think there's a couple more things that you did want to mention about supporting your health after antibiotics in particular. So let's just get us back on track there. <laughs> um, no, I, I super appreciate, um, I think, the the mindset here, I think, is so important to to address not not just for for Sarah, but for listeners who maybe don't have necessarily the same cycle, but have a piece of it, right? And trying to understand how to take this information and apply it, kind of, the, I think, talking about the greater philosophy around it really helps to solidify. Okay, here's here's the piece that's really relevant to me as a listener. At least I hope so. Um, that I really wanted to, to wrap up on some recommendations for, uh, probiotics, um, for anybody who, who finds themselves requiring antibiotics for any, any reason. So as I mentioned, the science is really strong on lactobacillus bifidobacterium species, as well as the probiotic yeast Saccharomyces boulardii. And, um, and there are a couple of different um, brands that are making this type of probiotic that I really like. I think my favorite is Smidge. Um, they have a uh, just it's just called probiotic that includes all of the lactobacillus and bifidobacterium strains that have been 
most linked to sort of supporting overall gut microbiome structure during a course of antibiotics. And then they have a separate, uh, what's called yeast biotic is what it, their name for it is, that's Saccharomyces boulardii. So um, I think Smidge is my my go-to recommendation here. I mean, there are some other companies. I mean, you can, you can basically, you know, you can't walk 10 feet in a grocery store and not find a, another um, product that includes these types of strains. This is what most um, sort of run-of-the-mill probiotics contain. Um, but the viability of the strains that are in them are not equal. Like quality is a huge, a huge thing across uh, probiotics, um, as well as looking at fillers and looking at exact you know, strains and substrains and doses. So Smidge is my recommendation. We can put links in the, sh the show notes. Again, this is not a sponsored show because there's a lot of, a lot of different things to recommend. Um, but we've also talked on the show a lot about Just Thrive, which contains bacillus species, which are under the banner of soil-based organisms. And studies have shown, studies haven't specifically, there are some studies showing that um, bacillus can help restore gut microbiome structure um, after illness or antibiotics. And there are some studies showing that they can help um, support the growth of lactobacillus. Um, and so I, I definitely think they're useful here. They haven't been as well studied as these other strains in the context of antibiotics, right? We don't have studies going like, well, if you take them during versus start them after what happens, um, but they kind of play different roles in this context. So we have these very well um, well-studied probiotic strains that are helping to maintain, right, the the gut barrier structure and um, and are, you know, producing vitamins and stuff like that on their way through. And then we have bacillus strains, which we just know are like keystone strains to support a healthy gut microbiome. And this is a case where I would definitely recommend both. They're doing a different job here. Interesting. I wouldn't have guessed all the variables that go into refilling those little gut friends and what makes each of them happy in a different sort of way. Yeah. So um, thanks for It really that. is like having 1,500 different pets. And makes sense that they would, some of them would need different foods than others. Like mm -hmm. I logically get that but wouldn't know where to even start so appreciate that um, I do want to recap some of the links and mentions that we've had in the show so Sarah just mentioned just thrivehealth.com slash the whole view um, we'll also put some links in the show notes to um, smidge for you um, if you use the link for Just Thrive, make sure that you use code the whole view. Unfortunately, we don't have one for you for smidge, but that just is an example of us giving you recommendations, not because, you know, we're out here to make a buck, but because it's the best one for you. So um, here's an example of that. The other links that I want to mention um, include Juve. So if you are interested in red light therapy, we do have a dedicated show on that for you. And we'll make sure that the link is in the show notes. The science is really helpful um, to understand. I remember being mind blown on that show. So you can yeah. go to joovv.com forward slash paleo view um, for, uh, I think there's some information specific to what we've shared on that link that might be helpful mm -hmm. from a scientific perspective as well. And then I did want to mention also, if you're interested in some of the skin topical type um, items. I put a link in the show notes for the countersun products that I mentioned, the SPF products, and you can get 20% off with code clean for all 20. Um, and if you choose Stacey Toth at checkout, I would be much appreciative, but if you already have beauty counter consultant, that's great too. So uh, I appreciate you pulling together all this science, Sarah. And if you want to hear more about what we really think, um, I, I have some things to say about what I really think about people in the community being anti-medicine and seemingly anti-science. Pop over <laughs> on <laughs> Patreon, where we'll dive Sorry, like I'm already excited to record our Patreon audio bonus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
thank you for reminding our listeners uh, about our Patreon and our Patreon fam. We'll see you over there in uh, a minute. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.